Welcome to Sound of Truth Weekly Interview, where we have conversations with ordinary people to learn how our extraordinary God is at work in people's lives and in the world today. I'm your host, Brett Morani, and I'm excited you've joined us. I'm excited to have joining us for this week's interview on Sound of Truth, my longtime friend, Aaron Summers. Aaron, good to have you on Sound of Truth. Thanks, Brett. Uh, appreciate you uh, inviting me on and look forward to our conversation today. So to let our listeners know how we know one another, Aaron and I met at Union yes. University, we, yep. where we were in college in West Tennessee, and then we also graduated together and went off to seminary together, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, yep. Texas, where we rented a little house on Gambrel Street along with our- 625 square feet, actually. You got an incredible memory. <laughs> you and me and you, Todd me and Brady. You and Todd, and I took the living room- <laughs> You were the servant. Room, you had the servant spirit. <laughs> now that I look back on it, though, it was a good thing you did because your work hours had you coming in and out or oh my whatever it was when we were already in bed. Yeah, or, I, was, I was closing at 2 a.m. in the mornings at Subway, and yeah, it's crazy time. I still remember, though, good you bringing home those sandwiches time. for us and those cookies. That was awesome. Yeah, I know it. I know it, right? It, yeah. That's why That's why you loved me is because I brought you food. Yeah, that's right. No. <laughs> And we, you, we both met our wives at Southwestern, and yep. then we went into pastoring churches after our time of seminary. That's right. And you That's have right. two grown kids, I guess I could say that now? Two, yeah, she's 18, so it's technically they're grown. They'll both be in college this fall, so yep, that's it. Yeah. Uh, next month, uh, we're, of course, this is recording in July and in August we'll move, get uh, get them both moved up to college. He'll move himself in at this point. He's done it four times, but uh, but she will we'll get her up freshman and get her settled into her, her dorm and, and so all same the co- same college for both of them? So, yep, they're both going to Oklahoma State. Uh, that's where my wife, Dulce, graduated and of course we lived in Oklahoma for eighteen years and so they're very indoctrinated into the cowboy lifestyle. All right. But nonetheless we we, we let them choose where they wanted to go. Uh, we visited several things, but they both ended up back there, uh, and we're, we're happy for that. Aaron's currently pastoring in Crowley, Texas. Well, Aaron, I want to hear your story. I probably know most of it through the years, have heard maybe going back to college, but it's always intriguing to me to ask someone, hey, tell your story. Start at the beginning. Tell me about growing up and then tell me how you came to faith in Christ. Let's devote this episode to your God story, and then we'll see if we've got some time left to kind of talk a little bit more about what God has taught you or what you've, how you've grown in Christ beyond that. But let's kind of focus on upbringing and conversion. Absolutely. Um, I, was, uh, I, I, was, I was born to a 15-year-old daughter, a girl, and a daughter of a captain in the Air Force, uh, put up for adoption. And at 28 days old, I was adopted by uh, Bill and Ellie Summers, and this was in California at the time. My dad had recently returned from uh, Vietnam and married my mother, and they could not have children. And so they entered the adoption process and uh, acquired me, and uh, we began, you know, I, I was growing up with them. We didn't go to church the first oh, four years or so. Um, but I do remember Bob Tab, uh, Pastor Bob Tab from First Baptist Church in Rona Park, California. At the time, he had stopped by uh, and uh, made a visit and talked to mom and dad about that. And, and we started going to church. And, and what part of California? I was five is at the time. 
What yeah, what part of California is, is that community? Yeah, it's an hour north of San Francisco. So Okay, northern California. Uh, up yeah. close toward Napa Valley and it's it's between between Napa Valley, Santa Rosa and San Francisco up in that area. So in the mid nineteen seventies your family decides to start going to church. They do. Uh and they and we did. Uh, it was 1975 when we went to church, and so dad, mom, and dad got involved. They were they had been believers. My dad had been was at the time and had been and would for a number of years later run from a call from God uh, into ministry. Uh, he was an air traffic controller, and he worked out of Oakland, and then he worked out of San Francisco. But they they got we got in. We went full in. We were there every time the doors were open. Dad was ordained a deacon. They would lead Sunday school classes and whatnot. But uh, I remember sitting there. We were in a. We were back in the day. We had you know week long uh, revival services, and I was sitting there and listening to the evangelist speak. And I remember tugging on my dad's coat, saying, "I want to do what he's talking about." And so I went back, and uh, Doctor W. A. Christensen was the associate pastor at the time. This was a church plant back in that time. And he was the associate pastor and was a professor at Golden Gate, a retired professor from Golden Gate. Golden Gate Seminary. And he, Golden Gate Seminary, yep, that's right. Not called that now. It, they've moved and they've re, I don't remember their name right now. But we went back into his office and we talked about uh, the Romans passages and he asked me to explain them. And, and he was satisfied with my comprehension of it, and I prayed to receive Christ. It was 19, September of 1978. I had just turned eight years mm-hmm. old and came to faith in Christ. That uh, was the beginning of the journey, but uh, there would definitely be some barriers in the process. At the time, you know, mom and dad did all mom and dad could do, and at the time, the thinking was just go to church, go to church, and church will disciple you. And mm-hmm. That wasn't necessarily what was happening uh, with me. I was eight at the time. In 1980, some of the listeners uh, may recall that there was a strike that happened as uh, Reagan uh, took over the presidency. PATCO, which was the Air Traffic Controllers Union, went on strike for better wages and better pay. Uh, My dad, along with thousands of others, were released of duty uh, from their jobs, and he decided that this was the sign uh, from God to remind him that he had a different call on his life. And so he surrendered to the ministry, went to Boyce Bible College to finish up his education, and began uh, and then would begin taking classes uh, from Southern Seminary in Louisville. Uh, we had moved there uh, the year before the strike. So, oh, so you were, you'd moved Dad from went, Northern California to Northern Kentucky. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, we we moved to Louisville in 1979. Dad went on strike in 1980. It was it was tough on me. I mean, I was I was the only child and adopted, so you know entitlement was you know really there as a part of my name. And I don't say that lightly. It's just it's what it was. Mom and Dad loved me greatly. Dad had a great job in the air traffic controller, and we had all we wanted, and I had all I wanted. You know, they doted on me, and it but it created this sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. So when dad went in the ministry, he went from in, in 1979, making over $70,000. A lot of money back then. A week. Yeah. A lot of money back he, then. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely it was. Uh, and 150 bucks a week. And he was driving 70 miles one way to get to seminary classes. Mm. And so it, uh, it shook me a, a lot. It really 
test. I wasn't deep enough in my faith to really handle that and kind of walked away from it as much as a 12, 13, 14 year old can. I mean, now let me as ask a you, pastor, I got to be, I got to be at church. So Yeah. And let me ask you this. Were you aware that you were adopted? Did they tell you that all along? Yeah. They told me that before I went to school because they want, they did not want that coming up in anybody's conversation without my knowing it. So they told me when I was four and a half preparing to go into kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Okay. I knew all along. Yeah. 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 So yeah. your dad had lost uh, his job. Deep. And you were you yep, having yep. a hard time struggling with that because you weren't very developed in your faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I kind of walked away from my faith for a, a few years, uh, as much as you can, and still be the preacher's kid. And I just, I was, I did was your parents know this? That, did your parents know that, that you had walked away from your faith? And, or were you just, did you just play the part? I played the part. I played mm-hmm. the part. I played the part until I went to college, and it was, and that was kind of a defining moment when I was exiting high school, going to college. I I wanted to make some changes, and I wanted to do some things different. The summer after high school was not my finest hour, and I had made a commitment that when I went to school, that that, that would be a time where I would make a change, and I would I would be different. And so I got back in the Word, got back into prayer, went back to church, actually going to church as a choice, not just as a have to because your dad, you know, is there. And it it was through that that freshman year of just reorienting myself and and learning and growing and developing that I began to, to sense that God had something different in mind. I went to college. Uh, as a chemistry major and a biology minor, I had medical school on my mind and was just, I was going to go be whichever one paid the most, whether that was neurology or anesthesiology, I was, whatever paid me the most, that's what I was going to go do. I mm-hmm. lived in poverty long enough and didn't want to do it anymore. You wanted um, to return to the good old days of, the, of your childhood when the money wasn't an issue. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I definitely wanted to do that. And but God had other plans. I came back my sophomore year. Now you you came in was it was it our sophomore year that you came in or junior? Junior. I, I transferred. You come in in ninety. I came in in ninety. I transferred uh, after my sophomore yeah. year of college at uh, Southern yeah. Illinois University SIU. SIU. Um, yeah. So uh, so that fall of my sophomore year, I'm sitting in organic chemistry, and I and of course at Union, of course we had we were required to take uh, at least. Old Testament and New Testament survey classes. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting in New Testament survey and organic chemistry that semester. And I felt the Lord was calling me to ministry and I didn't want to do it. Uh, I'd had my fill of that and I wasn't interested in that at all. But I recognized that if God was calling and I said, okay. And so I bartered with God like we all do at times. Hey, I'll do this if you'll do this, and but uh, God wanted it all, and so I ended up in the ER and and uh, and with a failing grade uh, in organic chemistry, and I was like, okay, I think this is uh, this is an important moment here that I <laughs> that I need to make a decision. You were in the ER and, uh, for that, I was in the ER for polyps, colon polyps, mm. and I and but it was just. It was a timing thing. I was praying to God, Lord, you know, you need to take, if you want me out of this, you're going to have to do something to show me, and you're going to take my passion away, all the things. And so I was doubled over in pain. I was midterm failing uh, that class. 
but meanwhile couldn't get enough of my uh, my New Testament class and and uh, Union at the time still had Fall Revival and we had a tent revival and Kelly Green if you remember him I do Kelly Green was uh, Kelly Green was preaching that Fall re- tent revival out on the front lawn before uh, before when they back when they had that full front lawn out there and he was preaching and and it was during that that revival service that tent revival on campus that I surrendered to the ministry. Now, let me uh, just went in. clarify this for our yep. listeners, because in a recent episode, yep. we actually, in one of our Bible chats, I believe it was, we talked about, when we use the term ministry in the, the background you and I have, we're talking about vocational ministry, recognizing the Bible teaches that all Christians are called into ministry to, to serve the Lord and to minister. So, based on Ephesians totally chapter agree. 4. Totally every, yeah, yeah, yeah. every, every agree. Follow, every follower of Christ has a ministry to do. Right. Uh, and every follower of Christ has a vocation to have. And uh, it just so happens God was mixing those two in my life. And right, like he did with mine. Yeah. enter the ministry. Yep, yep. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure and, that our listeners and, hear that, because that's a ter- yes. teaching, teaching point, you know. It is, absolutely. Uh, and I want to make sure that we're clear on that. Yeah. So, um, but he, he was calling me into full-time vocational ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and I answered that, and... Uh, finished out the semester and changed my major, and then you showed up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, we, it's true. Uh, I guess that uh, all happened you, right before I met you. you. Did. I have my longtime friend Aaron Summers on Sound of Truth weekly interview. Aaron's a pastor. I'm a past pastor. We've both been in vocational ministry now for, well, over three decades. We've seen a lot of change in church life. We both share a concern about how we do church today and how our culture has changed so much, even in our lifetime. These generations, the, my parents, your parents, how they think of church and how they think of the world. Let's talk about this generations thing. Let's go ahead and jump into that, Aaron. I know you've done a lot of research on that. What What are the five generations? You mentioned five generations to me before in conversation. So uh, tell us about that. Yeah, you know, the, the five generations, um, as I see and understand them, you have the silent generation, which was born prior to silent and, and traditional elder, kind of a double generation, anybody born before World War II. Uh, and then you come into some others that are very well known. You've got the boomer generation that was born after World War II, the largest generation uh, in America for the longest time. Then you have um, the Gen X generation. Uh, that's you and I, uh, born between 1965 and 1980, is the Gen X, a very small generation, actually, mm-hmm. uh, and a very skeptical generation. Then you have the millennials that were born 1980. Now, a lot of people in our churches today, I'm finding, still think about millennials as the teenagers, and that's not true. Millennials turned 40 this year, 42 this year. <laughs> and so they're having kids. They've got kids. And so the millennials were born 1980 to 2000. Then you've got Gen Z, which is 2000 to about 2015. Now, those are the five. You've got the silent, the boomer, the Gen X, the millennials, or sometimes called Gen Y, and then Gen Z. Uh, which is in elementary school and high school right now. The, your preschool area is really a new generation. They just haven't been around long enough for them to 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 be defined yet. There, a lot of people are calling them Gen Alpha just to start over, Generation A or Generation Alpha. And what we're what we see uh, is I, I've seen just such a distinction 
within each generation, that each one in a lot of ways is its own culture. And so, you know, whoever, so the, the culture in charge is the one that sets the tone of the church. And largely the boomers have, and I'm not being negative against them, because the boomers have been in charge for a long period of time. And uh, in that process, they, they've set the tone for a lot of things. Uh, in the 80s and the 90s, you and I came up through and entered ministry in the worship wars timeframe, which means, are we going to sing new songs or are we going to sing old songs? And that is something that was uh, <laughs> a very heated discussion in thousands of churches everywhere, which what, what are we going to do? And Back then, it was, our, uh, as one of our, it was like the hymnal versus the overhead projector. Exactly. And, uh, and it's, you know, and that still is a conversation that is had in, in some churches today. But, but mostly that, the, that the generations that's over, are so that's unique. gone. That, that, those wars are pretty much it, gone now. They are. Well, I would say that in the urban and suburban, In the urban and suburban settings, for sure. I mean, in my context, right. that's no longer much of sure. a, an argument. It, it, it's not blended. It, the, the blended mentality is something that is well-received, which is just a mixture of old and new, mm-hmm. uh, what Ed Stetzer calls what makes nobody happy. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's just a, something that he, right. he coins. But the, each of the generations is very unique, and they each have a worldview. And, and what's to me, what's unique about that right now is 100 years ago, you had, you know, or 150 years ago, you would have had maybe four generations. Yeah, you'd have some of, of older that would be surviving. But the length, but your average lifespan limited it down, uh, and the, the Judeo-Christian value system was so overarching and overwhelming in our country at the time that you didn't have so so radical a difference of, of opinions across generations as you see it today. The the prosperity of the boomers that were that they were provided for, and the the advent not only of the sexual revolution that the boomers initiated, but also the youth culture movement that the that the boomers initiated uh, it, it became so so strong that we started developing all of these unique ministries. You have youth ministry, student ministry, child ministry, college ministry. That wasn't the case a hundred years ago. You had church, and you everybody came to church and everybody worked together. And but now you have such differences of thought and opinion that we've seen our churches kind of uh, divide themselves up and compartmentalize themselves and. That's not creating the unity that the first church, the church in Acts, would have understood and would have seen. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about how the church today is not what the church was, uh, that's true. But our culture, in my opinion, is not just post-Christian anymore. It's anti-Christian, uh, which is very similar to the Roman ruled situation in the first century. Our church today simply needs to understand that we cannot live in 1984, that we're going to have to understand the culture in which we live and present the gospel in a way that is, will be received by, this, by the current generation. What happens typically, and you and I are products of this, and it happens to us too. I find myself doing this. It's easy for us to want to go back to the time that seemed to be such a, a wonderful time for us. And what reached us is what oftentimes we think reaches other people. And that's not the case. Each generation has its own unique uh, setup, uh, its own unique coding system, if you will. 
And if you don't learn how to unlock that code, then I'm not saying change the gospel. The gospel does not ever change. However, Jesus, the the same yesterday, today, and forever, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Now, if I could also insert at this point in time, Aaron, I want to point out that when we talk about generational things, when we talk about this is the way this generation thinks, et cetera, we want to be careful to acknowledge we're not saying that this is true of every single person in that generation. Like they're stamped with this. It is a generality. It is a generalization and it needs to be received as such that in general, this is the way this generation thinks. In general, this is how they do things differently. That's correct. Because I I can just imagine some people going, well, that's not true. My kid's not like that. My neighbor's kid's not like that. They don't need to say that's the way that generation is. Well, there are plenty of exceptions in all these generations, but we're speaking speaking in in general. Yes, absolutely. My parents are on the older side of Boomer, but they really operate more in the silent and elder lifestyle of things. My in-laws, who are only four years younger than them, are on the older side of Boomer, but acted much more uh, from the younger side of things. It, It just Everybody is unique and everybody's different, but in general, when Mm -hmm. you talk about large-scale generality, this has been the pattern that has been exhibited through research and survey and observation Mm -hmm. that these are some typical things to be understood when you speak of each of the generations. But yes, obviously, there are exceptions, just like there's outliers in churches. Right. Some churches are outliers, and you wouldn't think that they would be what they are, but they're they they're they're doing fantastic work and doing it in a way that you'd never dream possible. There's always outliers. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. You were saying before I interrupted. No, you're fine. You're fine. Just I think that we need to we we need to realize that every church needs to understand the context in which they live, and that that to me is extremely important. You so, need to understand who you are, but you need to understand where you are also. It's, it's kind of a double thing. Okay, so I think that's a good segue. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point for us to now segue from your excellent description of, of these generations and how things have changed. And, and especially, I love your comment that we're now living in not just post-Christian, but anti-Christian, increasingly anti-Christian right. culture. I know some of the research I've seen, survey work, this is talking to people and asking, why don't you go to church? Or would you be interested in going to church? And what would it take to get you to church, et cetera? Thousands and thousands of surveys, et cetera, all are pointing to the same reality. And that's this approximately, well, I think the latest has it more up to, you know, 70 or 80% of North Americans are not at all interested in our institutional church or what we do on Sunday morning, and they won't come. So I think that's, that is, that's, I haven't seen that exact statistic. On the other side of that conversation, I've also seen it somewhere between 27 and 32 percent of surveys show those that have that that list none as their religious preference. They just have no preference at all, and, and it's not even agnostic or atheist. It's just it's just none. I just I don't have any spiritual interest in things, which, which feeds is into that larger radically different from our country 100 years ago. Oh, totally. Yeah. That, that that yes the uh, the rise of the the rise of cable TV the rise of social media are two things that I think have greatly shaped us as a nation and I'm not I'm not I have cable TV at my house well I have satellite TV but the point being that when you began to have the information at your fingertips 24 hours a day seven days a week that changed things. And you saw this in the 70s when you've had the news reports and, and the media attention with the Vietnam War, and you were seeing death tolls on a daily basis. 
and you had the vivid graphical nature of things being put out there on TV that shaped the nation mm-hmm. when you, when you, you know, and as that, as that shaped the nation, I mean, we, we could talk about how the each generation has shaped the next one. And that has caused us these issues in, in church life. Well, you know, Gen I, Z was projected at being only 4% Christian. Yeah. I mean, each generation that you just mentioned, there are significant numbers in drop off of how many from those generations are committed to historic Christianity. And increasingly, we've seen a distrust of the institutional church that's reflected in a distrust of all things institutional. A lot of this goes back to, you mentioned the 1970s in Vietnam. Watergate was a watershed moment in our country. You can, you know, all all the research indicates that since Watergate, the trust level people have in their government has plummeted. And that has bled over. Institutional government did not trust it. Institutional church, do not trust it. The well, distrust of had, authority. You had following, yes. You, you, you know, you, that came up with us. We were the skeptical generation. Mm-hmm. You know, the traditional family unit broke down, and our generation, Gen X, for those listening, Gen X was the first generation to truly deal with, a, with broken homes, latchkey mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. Mom went back to work. Uh, and and these things, not all of which are bad, but these things shaped us and created skepticism within us. The the millennial generation was the first generation to have the the picture on the milk carton, mm. the the missing kid on the milk carton, you know. And so when as they're raising kids, they're even they're more skeptical about trust, and they they can't trust things. Couple that with the millennials grew up with the. The, the bishops in the Catholic Church and their, their the sexual scandal that happened in, in North America to mm-hmm. continue to erode this trust of institutional life. Then you've got the police that are that are being shown to do things that are not proper. And then you've got the, the moral failures of some of the major players in evangelical life mm-hmm. that are all playing into the millennials and the Gen Z to not trust the institution. And our churches are, are reeling from those realities okay, and so let me, are not able yeah, to, to function with those. So no. let me add two uh-huh. more factors I would add to this in terms of where generations and where a lot of Americans are putting their trust or, or losing their trust. They used to place their trust, I think from Watergate on, there was still a lot of trust in the media. Didn't trust the government so much, yeah. but we trusted the media. Walt, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite was famous. <laughs> yeah. Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Yes. And next to Billy Graham. You had your three major networks that ran their news stories and people watched the nightly news and they trusted what was being delivered to them. But that's no longer the case. And, and in many ways, in a lot of these cases of erosion of trust, it makes sense. And you and I look at it and go, yeah, well, they, there's a reason why. We don't trust our government. There's a reason why yeah. we don't trust the media. There's a, there's right. an agenda. You know, right. there's things that, and so a lot of this has been good to a degree. And even in the case of the church, there's a lot of skepticism that was justified, right? The scandals, well, and, all that. And, yes. So where yes. does a person put there's their trust? Scan- That's what I'm, I'm wondering. I right. think a lot of people today put their trust in science. And themselves. And themselves. Thank you. That was where I was going next. Science and themselves, <laughs> meaning their feelings. And they, they were raised on Disney telling them that. They were raised on Star Wars. Oh, absolutely. Trust your feelings, Luke. Yeah, trust your feelings. Yeah, trust your feelings, Luke. The answer is yep. found inside yourself, right? Right, right. So what Which do we is, do? As, you know, 
Christian leaders, what do we do as, as those who are concerned about these generations and all these people who don't know the Lord and need to for their own sake and also for the glory of God? How do we move forward? One, I think we a deep dive needs to be taken to understand the generation. How can you love somebody that you don't understand? Each generation needs to look at just an understanding of the other one. Be aware of what drives their work ethic. Be aware of what is uh, driving their, their cultural understanding. The major players in their generation, the major thought patterns that were happening, the major events. I mean, Columbine shaped the millennials. 9 11 has mm-hmm. shaped the Gen Z. And I think, you know, this, the pandemic is shaping the younger Gen Z, and pandemic is going to shape the next generation. There are major things that have happened, positive and negative, that have shaped, but we don't, we're so, we're so singular focused on ourselves. And this is what I want, going back to your feelings that you're talking about. I want this, I want it, and I want it now. And we're not taking the time, either the young to the old, or the old to the young, to better understand how can I love you? What is there that we have in common? This is, this is Dale Carnegie stuff. Find out the common ground between a person and start to have a conversation along common ground. And as you begin to have that common ground conversation, you might find some other stuff. But we instantly, because of the nature of our media cycles and the nature of, of the things that we're dealing with, we find what's wrong with them and what's different about them instead of trying to find what's good and what is, what is the same that we have in common. And I think that we, we, we initially have to do that. That's not, I'm not talking about initially, it doesn't sound very Christian, it doesn't sound very churchy, but I think it sounds very Christ-like in the sense that he got to know people and he loved them where they were. I mean, you look at the woman at the well, he had every reason to ostracize her and he didn't do it. And the woman caught in adultery had every reason to ostracize her, and he didn't do it. Why? Because he wanted to love first and lead second. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we we flip those in church life, and until we flip it back, we're we're not going to be what the New Testament church was, uh, and we're not going to see the growth that we we hope to see. Okay, I want to touch on uh, the erosion of truth on one more thing, if we have a moment. Sure. Yeah. Let's wrap it up with because this this I, final I think, part. That's fine. I think that. Along with all of these secular things, if you want to call it that, all these these cultural things that created an erosion of truth, uh, trust. What happened in the church in the seventies, eighties, and nineties was this hyper uh, focus on growth modeling, and the hyper focus on growth modeling inadvertently began to treat the public as a commodity, and that. Husband, wife, and 2.2 kids were treated as a commodity that we were all fighting to have, mm-hmm. and the millennials are tired of being marketed to, and the millennials refuse to – now, they're a contradiction in terms. It's true, but they don't want to be openly you know, viewed in that kind of way and that commodity. They, they're a human being. Love me for who I am. Don't love me for what I can bring to you. Love me for who I am. That's good. And that's something that our churches need to get into Gen Z, which is where my youngest child is and your youngest are. Gen Z, which are 5 to 18, 19 years old right now. Gen Z is even more that way. 
Love me for who I am. I'm going to fact check you on the fly because I have Google at my fingertips and I've got Siri at my fingertips. Mm -hmm. And so tell me the truth. Be authentic. Be real. Be honest. Don't tell me how great and wonderful life is. Tell me that it also has pains and problems and that the Bible addresses both. And I'll listen to you. But I want to listen to you. I don't want to listen to you as a vocational pastor. I want Mm -hmm. you first. And we have to be human to human before we can be anything else. And until we as a church understand, Big C Church and in Little C Churches, understand we're humans first. Love them. Love them. Just love them. I saw Rick Warren put a thing out on Twitter the other day. I don't know if you saw it. And he said, I've heard people say, hate the sin and love the sinner. And he said, I would love to get to the point that we just love people and I hate my own sin. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that's very important for us to understand in this conversation. Well, that's, that's the voice of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, the speck in your brother's eye that you're trying to get out while you got the log in your own. I mean, deal first with our Absolutely. own sin. Absolutely. Not that we completely ignore all the time other people's sins. No, no. Obviously, right. Jesus didn't teach that. But yeah, I love that. The, the idea of love people unconditionally and live before them humility and repentance that they see. And the Holy Spirit can take that. You don't. I think in many ways, you don't even have to say a word to them about their sin. They're going to be under conviction about it themselves. Well, I think the biblical model, when you're speaking about those who are followers in relationship, friendships and relationships with non-followers, I think our biblical model is to love them and let the Spirit do that work and not let us be junior Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Our, my job is not to a, to a non-follower to bring up all their problems and sins. Right. I'm supposed to love them, and in the process of that, we can have an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, my follower friend who claims Jesus and says, I love Jesus, I am supposed to, in relationship, I can call them out on some things that are biblical things, not opinion things, but right. biblical things. But that's a different relationship, and that's a different model that the Bible shows. That's right. That's good. Well, thanks again, Aaron, for coming on Sound of Truth Weekly Interview. It's been a fascinating and thought-provoking time together, and I hope our listeners were blessed by it and gets their wheels turning in their mind to think about where we're at today in our churches and as Christians and how we're going to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and thoughtfully with integrity. I appreciate uh, you having me on, and uh, thank you for the conversation. It's been good. God bless, brother. You too, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sound of Truth. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review it. Also, tell your friends about it. Thanks. Music is by Canon and is used by permission. Sound of Truth podcast is produced in collaboration with Harvest Jacksonville. It is copyrighted by Brett A. Mirani, 2022.